Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Um, Good morning, my name is Lisa Stewart, and I'm a member of the Women's Shepherding Team here at Hope Cotswold. Um, I'm going to read our passage this morning. It comes from Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, And came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the, child, the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Lisa. What a fun passage for you to read this morning. Uh, I thought it'd be a safe bet for me to get a woman to read that passage just because of what's being said in it. And so um, it is a hard passage to hear and hard passage to understand. We're going to seek to do so this morning. My name is Gordon Fleming. If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to consider God's word together. So let me pray. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, um, it, it is a tricky passage in a lot of ways. Um, it's confusing. Um, it even comes across as, as offensive at times, um, and it's going to take courage for us to really pay attention to what um, your word says. Um, You tell us, Lord, that your word does not return void uh, and that it accomplishes that for which it was purposed. And we also hear from the Apostle Paul when he tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for correcting, teaching, and training, and rebuking in righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that even this strange, weird passage that we had this morning, we would recognize that it is God-breathed, that it was given to uh, us by you for a great purpose. Uh, Lord, I do pray uh, for all of us here this morning. That last song resonated with me. I know that there are people walking in here with weary souls for whatever reason. Um, On some level, we are all sufferers. I remember how Elizabeth Elliot described suffering, that suffering is having something um, that you don't have or wanting something that you don't have and having something that you don't want Um, in a lot of ways. And so for all of us, there's things that we would like to have that we don't. And there's all, all, for all of us, there's things that we have in our lives that we don't want to have them. And so, Father, I pray that we could be honest and about where we are this morning, Lord, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's happy, whether it's joyful, whether it's sad. But we can just come in here and we can slow down and we can hear your words for us, Father. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, as Lisa read, we are currently in a sermon study of the book of Mark. This is actually our last Sunday in Mark. We're going to hit pause for about six weeks as we're going to study generosity to go alongside our Hope Overflowing campaign. 
But over the last few weeks, we've seen in this action-oriented, kind of rather undetailed account of Jesus' earthly ministry that one of the major themes that have taken place has been Jesus' authority, that he's shown authority in his teaching over church leaders, over sickness, over weather at times, and even over evil. But at the same time, Mark does a great job of showing us Jesus' humanity, We've seen at times where Jesus is exhausted, tired, or hungry. We've seen his compassion and tenderness. In fact, I think for me at least, this has been my favorite part. To see how Jesus interacts tenderly with people that are really sad and really hurting. How dignifying he can be to people who are really downtrodden. In the midst of confusion and pain, he tells people, don't be afraid. Just believe. It's going to be Okay. For me personally, it's really easy for me to think of God as this like big creator God, right? Who's this taskmaster who's constantly disappointed in me for my lack of faith or lack of obedience. Or for me to think of God as this like watchmaker God who creates the clock and then walks away and doesn't ever mess with it again. So whenever I read of Jesus speaking tenderly, to people who are struggling, really engaging with them, calling people daughter, my son, my child. I'm really comforted by the affection of Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself told us in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Brennan Manning wrote in the Ragamuffin Gospel, and this is a quote I've used often, he said, It must be noted that Jesus alone reveals who God is. We cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. And so everything that we can learn about God, we can learn by watching Jesus And in our passage this morning, we have another picture of our visible God. Not a God who is disinterested or disengaged, but a God that is engaging, accepting, and gracious. And in it, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. The late Jack Miller, pastor and author of the discipleship program Sonship, summed up the gospel in this way. He said, cheer up. You're worse a sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more love than you ever dared hope. We are worse than we think, and we are more loved than we'll ever know. And this is the filter through which we're going to consider this passage this morning. And in doing so, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, but at the same time, we're going to learn a lot about the gospel. So our outline this morning is super simple. It's in your bulletin. It's actually two points. We're going to simply look at the reality of who we are, and then we're going to see the reality of who God is. And so let's look first at the reality of who we are. So as our passage begins in verse 24, we see that Jesus has entered into a region which is now modern-day Lebanon. And we've seen over the last few weeks that he's been healing the sick, that he's faced adversity, and his fame has grown. Crowds are everywhere. He's faced opposition from the leaders in the church and even from his own family, actually. A Judean king wants him dead, and Jesus needs a break. And so he retreats to a remote area to be with his disciples. And as we have seen over and over and over again in the book of Mark, the rest just doesn't happen. We're told that immediately a woman comes to Jesus, and her approach is bold, and it is completely socially unacceptable. Here's what I mean. 
The region that Jesus has entered into rest possibly represented some of the most extreme forms of paganism that these Jews would ever experience. In the Old Testament, there's a common God that the enemies of God would worship, and his name was Baal, and Baal came from this part of the region. Politically, one first-century Jewish historian noticed that the inhabitants of Tyre would have been Israel's most bitter enemies. These people didn't practice the cleanliness laws that the Jews did, so they were considered unclean. The Jews and the Gentiles absolutely hated each other, and I'm not talking about UNC Duke hatred. I'm talking about real, actual hatred. The Gentiles called the Jews pigs, and the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. So they are diametrically opposed to each other, and they are different spiritually, politically, and culturally. And not only that, but in this first century culture, a woman was not even allowed to look a Jewish rabbi in the eye. And so this woman runs in, this Gentile, this unclean pagan, and comes and falls at Jesus' feet begging Matthew's account tells us that she begs loudly and she won't stop. At one point, the disciples try to get Jesus to make her leave. To, to her leave. She pleads with Jesus to have mercy, to save her baby, her little girl who is possessed by a demon. Now, there are definitely different levels of boldness in this world. Tim Keller points this out in his book, Jesus the King, where he writes, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. And if you are a parent and you have seen your child struggling, you know this to be true. Someone can threaten me all they want, but if they threaten my kid, it's another story. You can be the most timid person in the world until your child is hurting, and then everything changes. So understandably, this woman is desperate. Well, how does Jesus respond to her desperation? Let's look at verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Whoa. <laughs> that seems a bit harsh. Did Jesus just double down on the stereotype? Did he just call her a dog? That seems so offensive, and at first glance, it is. In New Testament times, calling someone a dog, much like today, was an insult. Dogs then were typically mangy street wanderers. As I mentioned earlier, Jews called Gentiles dogs because they were considered unclean. So is Jesus insulting her? Is Jesus calling her dirty and unclean? Well, no. And we know this because that goes completely against his character. That is not who he has shown to be over and over again. Instead, he is completely engaging her. He's dignifying her. He's inviting her in. He tells her a story. He tells her a parable. He says to her, look, you're a mom. You know how this works. There's a natural order to eating at home. First, the children eat, not the puppies. You don't feed the puppies first. You feed the children. In Matthew's account, he says, I was sent for the lost sheep of Israel. 
Jesus was first and foremost the Messiah to the Jews. He came first to them to show them that he was the fulfillment of their scripture, their prophets, their priests, and their kings. Yes, the gospel will come to the Gentiles. Thankfully for us, it has. But what Jesus has said is not yet. Essentially, what he is saying to the woman is that you have to understand the order here. I am here first for the children of Israel. You and the other nations are later. And how does she respond to this story? How does she respond to this metaphor, this parable? Let's look at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, this is super easy to miss, but she completely plays along. She buys into the parable, and her answer is amazing. It is so amazing that I want you to see how Jesus responds in the more detailed Matthew account. This is Matthew 15, 28. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. The translation that we are using this morning is the ESV, but other translations actually say wow or incredible answer. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, the message says, Jesus was impressed. Well, why? What was so impressive? Well, this woman is the first person to actually understand a parable, not the disciples. They were with him every day, and they never got it. He said to them over and over again, do you still not understand? But this woman gets it. And she answers him from it. She says to Jesus, yes, I agree. The bread is for the children, but even little puppies get scraps from the table, and I am here for mine. So the Flemings have a dog, a terrible dog named Georgia. She may be the worst dog in all of human history. Um, And when my kids are sitting at the kitchen island um, eating, if they happen to drop some food, right, they'll call Georgia over and they'll ask her to eat the, the scraps from the table. So obviously, we don't prepare the meal for Georgia, but when scraps fall to the floor, she gets to enjoy the food that was prepared. And that's exactly what this woman is asking for. She is asking for table scraps. Can you see how amazing this is? The humility that this woman shows, I'm not sure I would respond like that at all, and I'm not sure that any of us would. Because we live in a culture of entitlement and self-protection. If you don't look at me, if you don't believe me, look at social media. I think oftentimes the sole purpose of Facebook or Instagram or Twitter is to convey success, happiness, and status. To convince someone that we are, to convince others that we are someone that we actually are not, but not this woman. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't stand on her rights. She simply and humbly says, all right, what you're saying about me is true. I do not belong at the table, but there is enough food at the table for everyone, and I need mine, and I need it now. She isn't asking for anything based on what she deserves, but only what is based on Jesus' goodness, and Jesus loves this. This is a constant theme throughout all of Scripture. Listen to a parable, another story that Jesus tells in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who had trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts, exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to what King David said after he was confronted by a friend for have, committing adultery with a married woman and then having her husband murdered. This is from Psalm 51. He said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. This is why the image of the invisible God was so impressed, because God has shown all throughout Scripture that the thing he values is a humble, broken, and contrite heart. This is the reality of who God is. This is what he values. He doesn't want fakers. He wants real people looking to the real Jesus for real change. Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, puts it this way. We must never forget that we have earned neither our standing with the Lord nor our place in ministry. Each moment he accepts us and each situation when he uses us is a result from one thing and one thing alone, grace. We have no right before God or others to self-assuredly stand with our hands out. We are independently entitled to nothing but his anger. Only grace entitles us to his accepting love. The smug expression of blessing will cause you not only to question the appreciation of the people around you, but also the goodness of God. The first part, the first thing we have to do to understand the gospel is to realize that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. The first thing we have to do is begin to understand, as we begin to understand the gospel is that we have to humbly accept who God says we are. And how do we do this? Well, we have to let the Bible do its work. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Fourth century theologian St. Augustine of Hippo wrote, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. So practically, here's what that means. That we have to read our Bibles not for others, but we need to read it for ourselves. When we hear verses that say things like, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we don't need to think, yeah, I knew it, my wife, all right, my kids, my husband, they are so sinful. 
When we read love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, we don't need to hide it away like spiritual ammo for the next time we get in a fight with someone so that we can look at them and say, you know what, you need to be more patient. You need to be kinder. Instead, we need to realize that we aren't patient that we aren't kind, that we are arrogant and rude, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. When we read Genesis 6-5 where it tells us God saw that the inclination of the hearts of man was only evil all the time, we have to realize that it's talking about our hearts, not just our kids, not just our parents, not just some jerk at work, but us, that the default setting of our hearts is evil. We need to agree with what the Bible is telling us about us. And then, as St. Augustine said, we need to implore the help of grace. This is called repentance. This is boots-on-the-ground repentance. Saying, Lord, what you're saying about me is so true. My heart is so evil. I am not patient. I'm not kind. I'm arrogant. I need your grace. Please change me. I need bread from your table. I need crumbs from your table because of what you have done, certainly not because of anything I have done. So again, the first step to understanding the good news of the gospel is to realize that we are more sinful than imagined, but here is why the gospel is called good news, because that's not where it stops. We aren't abandoned to ourselves in our sin and our shame because we are more loved than we ever dared hope by the God of the universe. And when we turn to him in honest faith and repentance, what does it do to us? Well, it does the same thing that it did to the woman. It gives life. It gives us purpose and meaning. The very thing that we look to every day apart from God, we will actually find it in his grace, acceptance, and love. And when we, we really begin to live, when we have this gift of life that is given to us through the gospel, something inevitably happens. And we see this again in verse 24 where it says that Jesus entered a house and did not anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. He couldn't be hidden. When we really believe that we are more sinful than we, we imagined, but we are more loved than we dare dreamed, when we get on board with what the Bible tells us about our sinful states, that we are so sinful that Jesus had to die for our sins, but that we were so loved, he was happy to do it. When we understand that the gospel of grace isn't anything, doesn't have anything to do with what we have done, but everything to do with what Jesus has done. When our hearts are melted in us, he can't be hidden. His love actually moves us out into the lives of others. We actually can't help but love people in the way that Jesus loved us. And at that point, we can actually start to tell people what the Bible says is true about them. Instead of enabling people to throw themselves into their sin because we don't want to hurt their feelings or we don't want to offend them or appear judgmental, we actually begin to speak truth and love to them. We actually begin to, as Proverbs 27 tells us, to faithfully wound our friends because our identity is no, no longer tied to that person's opinion of us. Because our identity is tied to the person of Jesus and what he has done for us. 
And since our identity is tied to Jesus' opinion of you, then the opinion of others don't really matter as much as they used to. So you can stop replaying the tapes in your head of what so-and-so said to you when you were in eighth grade. The opinion of your mother doesn't have the power that it once did because your identity is rooted in God's love for you. And because of this, like Jesus did, you will actually begin to love the unlovable. You can dignify the downtrodden just as Jesus did. And I'm not just talking about the poor or the sick. Yes, I am talking about them. But I'm also talking about finally forgiving someone that hurt you years ago. Friends, family, a boss, a horrible coworker. Loving someone who would be a natural enemy if it weren't for the good news of the gospel. And you begin to give yourself away just like Jesus did. You begin to love others in a costly way, sacrificing your comfort, your career, or your reputation because you know what it took, the cost that it took for you to be brought to the table. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says about this very thing. This is from 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you were healed, and now we can live to righteousness. It is in his suffering that we are redeemed. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb, so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. The son became a dog so that we dogs could be made sons and daughters. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast from the table without a crumb, so, so that those who, of us who are not children can have a seat at the table. Listen to me this morning. Don't be so isolated that you think you are beyond healing. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are because you are so very loved. And that is why we come to this table every month to be, to be reminded of our sinful state without Jesus and to be tangibly assured of the love that he has for us. Again, our redemption, our forgiveness required the very death of God but we are so loved that he was happy to do it. This is a place for us to come and be physically strengthened by the crumbs of Jesus' table. You know, the Christian gospel is utterly unique. Martin Luther pointed out that in the gospel we are at the same time sinner and saint. Now, the key is to understand the order there. In order to become a saint, you have to freely admit that you are sinners. If you are here this morning and you can freely admit that you are a sinner, but you know that Jesus has given you the crumbs of his grace to make you a saint based on what he has done, on his worthiness, 
then this table is for you. Come and be strengthened by this, his means of grace. Come and be a real person looking to the real Jesus for real change. This is a place where that can actually happen. But remember, this isn't Hope's table. This is Jesus' table, and he tells us not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. And so if you hear what we talked about this morning, and you're unwilling to admit that the gospel is one of grace and that there's nothing that you personally contribute to your salvation other than the sin that makes it necessary, then this table isn't for you yet. If you don't believe that you need someone from outside of yourself to save you, Don't violate your conscience by doing something that you don't believe in. Again, don't be a faker. Just keep your seat. No one will judge you. No one will even notice. Instead, there are some prayers on the back of your bulletin for you to consider. When we come to this table, we remember that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, we're told that after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, for your forgiveness, for the remission of your sin. Take and drink. So it's our practice here at Hope to come down and receive the elements, and when you're ready, take them back to your seat. Practically, we found that it's easiest to come to the middle aisle to take the elements down, on, down front and then go outside the outside aisles. Um, and then once everyone has been served, we will take them together, together. So on the trays, the inner eight cups are wine and everything else is grape juice. And there's gluten-free wafers in the prepackaged cups. Um, this morning, I'm going to pray a prayer from Thomas Cramner's Book of Common Prayer. And this is a communion prayer. And it's actually one that is based on the passage that we considered this morning. And so let me pray this. And then, Graham, I believe you're going to help if you'll come down front. And the worship team, if you all to come back up. Let's pray. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Amen.